morning, everyone. Welcome to Tucson, Arizona, to the Stewart Observatory. And um, the one, two, fourth lecture of our spring 2022 uh, semester. Um, before I introduce tonight's speaker, I have some good news. If you haven't been listening to the news broadcast today, President Robbins has announced that unless there is a strong spike in COVID-19 cases this week, next Monday, the 21st, we're going to uh, lift the requirement to wear masks in university buildings. So that would mean our next lecture in two weeks on the 28th won't have to wear masks, but that is contingent upon there not being a spike in COVID cases this week because we just came off a of spring break. And so the students and a lot of the faculty have been coming from all over the world back here. Um, it is a beautiful night in Tucson, clear skies. The telescope is open for, open for your viewing at the end of tonight's lecture. Now, if you've looked through the telescope before, you might want to go again tonight because over spring break, Professor McCarthy and some of our undergraduate students together with the mountain operations crew of Stewart Observatory installed a new baffle on the 21-inch telescope around the donut hole that's on the primary mirror in order to block out more of the background skylight so that the it, looking through the telescope, it looks a lot darker. We've been able to block out a lot more of the street light, uh, sky brightness. So you might want to take a look at that. Uh, you'll be the first ones to see it because right before... I came, Dr. McCarthy was up there collimating the telescope. So that's all done. White building next door, up two flights of stairs on the ground floor. We've restored the original lobby of Stewart Observatory. The building itself is over 100 years old. Um, we'll be coming up on the 100th anniversary of the installation of the telescope in July. And uh, you're free to look at some of the exhibits that we have there, as well as see the old front door to Stewart Observatory, which we will one day reopen and a little mock-up of Professor Douglas's office. Um, other than that, if there are any students here for an assignment, I don't see very many people who look like students, but if you are here for an assignment, let me know, I can validate your assignments. Now, we are continuing with our series of lectures this year on the James Webb Space Telescope. Tonight's speaker is Dr. Skylar Wolf. Dr. Wolf received her bachelor's degree in astronomy, excuse me, her bachelor's degree in physics with a minor in astronomy from Western Kentucky University, which is in Bowling Green, Kentucky. She then received her PhD at Johns Hopkins University. Her PhD was in physics and astronomy. Then she was a postdoctoral fellow in Leiden, which is in the Netherlands. And she came to us from the Netherlands in September of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. So she's one of our new uh, uh, staff who actually doesn't really know a lot of people here because everything was done virtually from home when she arrived. And she's just starting to get settled into Stewart Observatory. So let's welcome Dr. Schuyler Wolf, 
who is going to give a talk on looking forward to James Webb Space Telescope, Planetary Debris Discs. Dr. Wolf. Thank you very much. Can everyone hear me? No? Okay, I can turn this to this thing right here. I'll use my nail. <laughs> Try that. How's that? Better? Yeah. All right. There you go. Thanks very much. And thank you for that warm welcome. Uh, so as he said, today I'll be talking all about the exciting plans we have for debris disks with James Webb. But I thought I'd take the beginning of this talk to actually talk about the commissioning plans um, that have been ongoing. Uh, so I think in the last public lecture, you heard all about the successful deployment of James Webb. We went from this carefully folded um, billion dollar instrument to a beautifully unfolded instrument in space. Uh, and that was went very flawlessly and was very exciting. Uh, since then, we've been working on aligning all of the mirrors. There's a secondary mirror, a tertiary mirror, and 18 mirror segments in the primary, and all of them need to be carefully aligned. This is a schematic of the entire plan for commissioning. Uh, I don't want you to get overwhelmed here, uh, but the idea is just that we have a, a telescope commissioning phase where we phase the mirrors and check that the telescope is working as it should. And then we move on to a science commissioning phase where we check out all the instruments and make sure the innards of those are working correctly. Uh, we've been working thus, uh, and I'll be speaking to you today about the initial mosaic image mosaic, um, the, the segment alignment, uh, and then I'll be talking about the course phasing that's ongoing as we speak. So if this works, I'll let Goddard explain this a bit. No. So how does this work in practice? The first step is to choose an isolated bright star. Uh, the team here has chosen HD 84406, which is an isolated bright star in the Big Dipper. There it is. Uh, and so the idea is to take an image of that one star with the near cam mosaic. But since you have 18 individual segments that haven't been properly aligned, what you will see in that image is actually 18 stars that are all a copy of that one star. Um, and they will be dis displaced uh, throughout the field of view. 
And so the idea is to match each of those point sources to one of the segments um, and differentiate, move the mirrors to try to align all of those segments into one final star. Uh, so each one of those 18 segments has six actuators on the back, um, giving it a bunch of different degrees of rotation and tip tilt, and then one in the center that allows you to adjust the curvature. So you can think of the tip tilt as akin to changing the alignment on a car mirror uh, so that you're looking at the, what you expect to look at the road, or in this case, HD84406. Uh, and then to adjust the curvature, this is akin to your eye adjusting your focus. So the muscles on the side of your eye can change the curvature and density of your lens, and that changes the focus. So the, the actuator on the back of each of those James Webb segments works in just the same way. Uh, so we've actually completed much of these first steps. Um, so I'm going to show you a video with actual data from that alignment process. So this is the mosaic from NIRCAM, and they're going to zoom in in a bit, and you can see the 18 individual images of that one star. So they're quite spread out, but they have managed to label them to a segment. And you can see the two wings are separated out quite nicely. Some of these are overlapping. <clears throat> Would have been an interesting so lecture. now to um, be able to see exactly what each of those <clears throat> look like, so they're not overlapping, and you can disentangle them. They separate that them out into this hexagonal pattern, uh, essentially, so it's intuitive. And these are some test bed results from before we launched James Webb. So this is sort of what we expected the uncorrected PSS to look like for each of those segments. And once you have them stacked into that hexagonal shape, you can then center them all together. So if we take another look at that first image, you can see the 18 images. There's a few that are you know, overlapped, so it's tough to see exactly what those individual PSS looks like. Um, and then you can see the, the wings are clearly separated here, here, and here. And these are the, the three segments on each side that had to be uh, folded. Could you define what PSF means? Oh, sure. Uh, PSF is a point spread function. So this is essentially just the shape of the, the image on the detector plane um, that the, the light from the star makes as it passes through all of the different optical elements. I hope that's clear. All right, and this is the actual data for the image array once you separate out all the PSFs. Um, so you can see there are some that are less focused than others. Um, but in the end, we got something that looks quite nice. And then this is the actual image from James Webb Space Telescope of all of those segments stacked one on top of the other. Um, and this stacked one. image will actually become even better as we continue with the mirror alignment. The next step, we have all the mirrors pointed in the right direction, but we don't necessarily know if they're all the right height, if the distance between the mirrors is optimized. Uh, okay. And so we enter the coarse phasing phase. Uh, so the idea here is that you'll take 20 pairs of two segments 
interfere that light together. So point those both at the same spot. And if you do that 20 times and the wavefront sensing and control team um, does a whole lot of fancy computer simulations that I don't have time to explain in detail here, um, the idea is you'll be able to understand the relative height between all of the mirror segments and correct for that so that your telescope becomes one nice smooth surface. And they just announced today that there is a scheduled press conference on Wednesday to show the results from this. Um, and I hear they're going to be very exciting with some beautiful images. So if you're interested, please check that out. But now on to the exciting debris disk science. So in the public lecture last month, I believe, three weeks ago, uh, you all learned hopefully about protoplanetary disks. Um, these are these very gas and dust rich disks around young stars and debris disks are sort of the, the, the older generations of these systems. So they're integrally linked in this stellar and planet evolutionary model that I've sort of drawn out here. Uh, the basic idea is that you have a dense region in a molecular cloud collapsed to form a star and then surrounding gas and dust collapses into a, a toroidal protoplanetary disk surrounding it. And then over time, that disk, the, the dust in the disk coagulates, falls towards the midplane, the gas disperses, and you're left with a main sequence star and a debris disk, which is looks something like our own solar system with our sun, our planets, and our asteroid and Kuiper belts. If we look a bit deeper at what's going on in the in the disk midplanes in the in the radial innards of these systems, um, the the blue here is gas. So the massive flare disk. This is your protoplanetary disk. You have a bunch of small dust grains that are supported by the pressure of the gas in the system to create this flared shape. And then over time, the dust coagulates and settles down towards the midplane, and you have a settled disk. And then you move into the photoevaporative disk phase where the gas starts to evaporate. Uh, and the, what you're left with is the dust. Um, and this is small dust. This is larger planetary embryos that didn't fully form planets. And this also includes your planets in your system. So I, I hope you uh, have learned the debris disks are circumstellar belts or rings of dust and debris left over from this planet formation process. Debris disks are found around most main sequence stars. These aren't rare. Um, and they do have uh, small dust grains and in some cases gas that are often replenished by collisions between these planetesimal bodies. These are, these are moons and asteroids that collide with one another forming um, a cascade of small dust grains. Um, here's another schematic of a debris disk that looks maybe a bit more familiar, something like our own solar system, where you have a sun, uh, you have some hot dust sublimating onto the star, um, you have some terrestrial planets or rocky planets as you move further out from the system, and then you have something akin to our own asteroid belt. Uh, as you move further out, you start to encounter gas giant planets, then ice giant planets, and then something akin to our own Kuiper belt. Uh, I'll describe, separate out the dust components and describe them in more detail. Uh, so I said there was the hot dust component at the sublima sublimation zone. Uh, and this is the transition state uh, where the 
The environment is so hot that the rock uh, sublimates, transitions directly to the gas state. Uh, and that hot dust emits strongly in the near infrared. So if you can see the uh, temperature bar across the top here, that's the ambient temperature at that radial location in the disk. So it makes sense that as you get farther from that hot central star, uh, you cool off. And so the planets and, and disk components here are going to be much warmer than the Kuiper belts and the ice giants out at the edge of your solar system. If we look closely at the asteroid belts, we often find them located near water ice lines. So these are the radial locations where the temperature allows water to condense out into ices, um, which has important implications for the composition. Is there water or ice in your forming planetary embryos, for example? Um, and asteroid belts are mostly made up of uh, rocky bodies, but they can be shepherded by giant planets like in our own solar system, uh, Jupiter shepherds our Kuiper belt. Uh, well, our asteroid belt and our Kuiper belt. So in the outer regions, you have the Kuiper belt analogs, um, which are on the outer edges. Uh, and these tend to be full of icy bodies. They're outside of the ice lines. Uh, and they're remnants of the original primordial disk. So you often have lots of uh, larger rocky bodies out here. Technical difficulties. difficulties. All right, here we go. Let's see if this lasts. Uh, so here's another way to look at your planetary uh, system, your debris system, and that is by the energy uh, each component provides to the entire system. So this is a similar schematic where you have a sun, you have your terrestrial planets, your asteroid belts, your giant planets, and then this is your Kuiper belt analog here. Um, so in the inner regions, those small hot grains here they're labeled exozoti. Um, those have the, the shortest wavelength emission, um, which is the highest energy. If I can go back. Um, so one thing I forgot to mention, um, the characteristic temperature uh, can be equated to a, a characteristic energy at a radio location in the disk. And dust and uh, planets tend to transmit light easiest. Um, at a wavelength roughly equal to their size and in relation to their temperature. Um, so as you, as a rule of thumb, as you move out to cooler temperatures, you're also going to be seeing the discomponents at longer and longer wavelengths, uh, lower energies and longer wavelengths. Um, so that's represented here where you have your hottest dust at your shortest wavelength, your highest energy system. And then as your asteroid belts, you move a bit further out that emits most effectively at a few microns here. And then your Kuiper belt is going to be the coldest component in your system. All right, here we go. So uh, when we look at debris disks, we like to look at them with all the instruments we have available to us uh, across the electromagnetic spectrum uh, to see what we can learn from, from the individual wavelengths. Uh, so the optical is probably what you all are most familiar with. Uh, this is an optical image of the Fomalhaut debris disk. Um, and this is 
Uh, in the optical, you're most sensitive to light reflected off of the smallest dust grains in your system. Um, so this is something like, you know, dust grains uh, showing up in, next to a bright window. This is reflected light from the sunlight coming through the window, not thermal emission from the dust itself. Um, the oh, uh, HST Hubble Space Telescope, um, that operates in the optical wavelength. So many of the beautiful disk images I'm going to show you today were taken with Hubble, um, and those are all in reflected light. As you move to longer wavelengths, you're sensitive, again, to thermal emission um, uh, of greater and greater dust particle sizes. So in the infrared where James Webb operates from about 0.6 to 28 microns, you're sensitive to thermal emission from dust grains of a few uh, microns in size. Um, and thermal emission, it's sort of exactly what you would expect it to be. Um, if you've ever seen images from a thermal camera or something like this, this uh, visual light from this the London Zoo. Um, it's just light that's emitted and then um, and light that's absorbed and then emitted as, yeah. as thermal energy. Um, and here is an image of that same disk I showed you in the optical, the Fulmelhout debris disk system, it observed in the infrared. Uh, so these images are obviously at much lower resolution. They're not as uh, sharp, um, but this is the state of the art. This is the best we have been able to do in the mid-infrared thus far. Um, and I hope that James Webb will vastly improve our ability to image disks in this region. And then as we move out to even longer wavelengths, uh, you become sensitive to thermal emission from larger and larger particles. So in the submillimeter, you're looking at larger dust grains, um, and you can see this beautiful image of that same debris ring um, taken with the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, or AMA. Um, to give you an example of the diversity of these uh, circumstellar disk systems, here's another disk. I think this is HH30, as viewed with AMA. And instead of one sharp ring, this has many rings and many gaps. Um, and uh, is a very exciting system to look, for example, planets in each of those gaps. But if we go back to Fumalhaut, um, these are the images I've showed you before. The HST optical is in blue. The AMA is in the orange here. This is that 24 micron observation with Spitzer. And this is what we hope to do with James Webb for that same system. So Webb will be able to produce Hubble quality pictures in the mid-infrared, um, which I'm very excited about. Uh, if we go back to taking a look at the large diversity in debris systems, here's a gallery of images. I believe these are all taken with Hubble, but there might be a couple of ground-based images in there. Um, but you can see there's lots of different morphologies, lots of different shapes and features within these debris disks. Um, and each one of these features can be, has something to do with the environment in which these debris disks form, whether it was from interaction with embedded planets or the interstellar medium it traveled through. Uh, so you can have things like narrow or broad rings. You can have narrow or shallow gaps, uh, clumps, asymmetries, spiral arms. These swept back rings are particularly uh, difficult to explain. Uh, but the debris disks, in many cases, can be thought as sort of, of as sort of fossil records 
of the planetary system evolution. Another way to look at the diversity of these systems. So here along the bottom axis, I'm showing just a variety of different debris systems. And then here we're showing their radial separation. Um, so you can see the, the belts are located um, at, at various radial separations. Um, and the colors here represent the wavelengths that those debris disks were detected in. Uh, so you can see lots of them were in the visible or near IR with HST, and very few of them have been detected in the mid IR with, uh, with any uh, mid IR instrument. Um, and we hope James Webb will help populate uh, this chart a bit more. Um, another thing I want you to take away from this is some of these disks have been looked at with multiple instruments and the locations of their debris rings don't agree necessarily. Um, and again, that's because each of these observations is probing different dust populations, both radial separations and sizes. Uh, so you really need to observe these systems at a variety of wavelengths to get a full picture of the formational history of each one of the systems. So what science questions specifically do we hope to answer about debris disks with James Webb? Uh, well, as I've said, are there, are there structures, substructures in these disks, and do they trace planets? What about ice lines? Are those substructures associated with ice lines? Um, are debris disk minor bodies like asteroids or comets on our own solar system, or do they have unique compositions and sizes? Um, and how does scattering uh, compared to thermal emission? So how do the James Webb images compared to the Hubble images? Are they tracing the same dust? Uh, so the idea is that James Webb will explore both the morphology and the composition of debris disks. Um, and one of the ways we'll do this is by looking at the disk color. So James Webb has a variety of different filters, um, different camera filters. And we're hoping that by taking images at different filters and comparing the, the colors or the differences between those filters, we can learn something about the bulk composition. Um, and I'll explain that in more detail soon. Um, but the, I, this is a simulation of the near-cam uh, chronograph observations of a debris disk uh, in different filters. So um, this is 3 microns, 3.6, 4.44. Uh, and you can see, I, I guess, I don't know if it shows up well on this screen, but the brightness is different in the three bands. And so we're hoping by looking at those colors, we can learn something about uh, evidence for ices or tholins to characterize the Kuiper belts in, in a bunch of these systems. Um, so uh, uh, not only is James Webb going to take images, but it's also going to be able to get spectra. Uh, and so here I'm showing um, a sample of spectra for debris disks with different composition. So the idea is both NIRSPEC, the near-infrared spectrometer, and MIRI, the mid-infrared instrument, two instruments on board James Webb. They both have infrared spectroscopy um, capabilities. And this includes uh, really exciting features for um, astrochemics like the water line, the carbon dioxide line, as well as silicate emission features at 10 and 20, sorry. Um, and not only does this have spectroscopic capabilities, but it it's also includes an integral field spectrograph. So what that means is 
uh, you can get spectra at various points throughout the field. You're not getting spectra of the bulk system. You're getting a spectral map of the system. So you'll be able to determine if uh, the spectra at different radial locations is different. So is the spectra of your uh, asteroid belt different from that of your Kuiper belt? Do they have different compositions? Uh, I guess I can say while we're here. Um, the, I'm, I'm gonna next highlight some of the results from the Spitzer Space Telescope in terms of uh, spectra of debris disks. Um, if you can see from the EM spectrum here, so here's Hubble and the optical, and then we have James Webb and Spitzer. And Spitzer uh, uh, does overlap with the spectral range of um, James Webb. Uh, so we should be able to reproduce a lot of the science results that Spitzer was able to, but at a much higher sensitivity um, and, of course, with uh, spatial resolution. If the slide ever Mm. Uh, so here's an example of some of the exciting uh, debris disk spectroscopy science that has been done with Spitzer. So this is a spectrum of uh, HD 172555. Um, and so here along the x-axis, we have the wavelength, mm. and here we have the brightness. Um, and this has several important spectral features uh, that hadn't been seen in debris disks before. Uh, so the wide peaks here at four microns and here at eight microns in the yellow, um, those are due to silicon monoxide, which is a gas that is formed as rock is heated uh, at such high temperatures that it evaporates. Oh. Then the sharper peak here uh, at nine microns is characteristic of amorphous glassy silica, which is similar to quartz or glass. Um, and this is formed when rock is melted, which produces the tektite, and then refrozen, which is the obsidian. Uh, and then finally, the slow rise here out to the 35 microns. Um, that's characteristic of thermal emission from uh, rocks, essentially, rocky rubble um, from uh, about 14 to 35 microns. So what we interpreted this data as telling us is that there was some recent massive collision between giant planetesimals, something like the moon colliding into the earth that created the superheated plasma releasing gas and creating a cascade of, of small particles. Um, so James Webb will be able to reproduce results like this as well as radially resolve them. So if we had seen the system with James Webb, we might have been able to tell you where exactly that collision occurred, which would be very exciting. All right, so now I'm going to move on to some of the more technical parts of how we actually conduct these observations with James Webb. Uh, most of what I work on is coronagraphic or high contrast imaging. And that just means you're trying to look at something very faint next to something extremely bright. So you're looking at optically thin dust right next to a bright star. Um, the analogy that's often made is trying to see a firefly next to the light of a lighthouse from 200 miles away. Uh, it's a challenge. 
Um, but there has there technology exists to solve this problem. Uh, I'm showing you here a very basic model of a chronograph, um, which was initially invented to block the light from our own sun so that we can see the solar corona, which is what you're seeing here. Uh, and this is a very basic form of a chronograph. You just have a spot to block the star and an arm to hold it in your optical pathway. Um, chronograph technology has improved a lot since then, um, but many of the chronographs on board James Webb are quite basic, um, mostly because the technology on space telescopes is locked about 20 years before they fly. Uh, so um, this is uh, the, a representation of the NIRCAM chronographs. There's chronographs on board both NIRCAM and MIRI. NIRCAM has five, three of these uh, spots, <laughs> and then two wedges. Uh, so the wedges are nice because you can pick exactly how much starlight you want to suppress, but there's a trade-off. So the more starlight you block, um, the easier it is to see fainter material, but you're also blocking your ability to see them near to the star. So you, you can see fainter material, but only farther away from the, from the star you care about. So that's a trade-off. Um, so ad in addition to the, the five chronographs that are optimized to work at different wavelengths, it also has a bunch of filters, uh, which I've mentioned before. So the filters are shown down here. Um, and then as a comparison, I'm also showing the reflectance spectra of a series of um, things, uh, ice frosts and tholins. Sorry, is there a problem? Uh-oh. Uh, uh, that would be exciting to see in one of these debris systems. Um, so if you, for example, took an image at this 300 micron filter and compared it to one at the 250 micron, 2.5 micron filter, um, you could tell something about the bulk composition by comparing the slope here. Uh, so this is that same image I showed before of the simulated uh, near cam images for this debris disk. And so this is, again, you measure the brightness around this ring and around that ring, and you subtract them, essentially. It's a pretty uh, easy measurement um, and determine something about the bulk compositions here. All right, so this is a contrast plot, which is what we, how we typically describe chronographic performance, uh, but there's a bit to unpack here. Uh, so please interrupt me if you get lost. But this is just separation from your star or your chronograph spot, however you want to think about it. And then along here we have contrast, which is just a ratio of um, what you can see uh, divided by the flux from the central star. Um, so, you know, for James Webb, the contrast curves are shown in these pink and red lines for the spot and wedge chronographs. Um, and so you could see, you know, something 10 to the five times fainter than the central star with James Webb at a radial location of say an arc second. So that's pretty good. Um, and then we are comparing them here to a series of exoplanets. Um, here ones that have already been observed. So this is the beta planet around Beta Pick um, and then three of the planets around the star HR 8799. These would be very easy to observe with James Webb. Um, and then we're also showing uh, what we could see if it was in one of those uh, gaps in the debris disks that we saw earlier. So for example, um, to understand this, I'll point out that uh, young planets 
are easier to detect than old planets because they cool as they age. Uh, so here we're comparing, you, we would be able to detect a 0.1 Jupiter mass object. So a 10th of the mass of Jupiter if it had an age of 100 million years. But at that same contrast, we could only detect a one Jupiter mass planet if it had an age 10 times older. Um, but regardless, we'll be able to see a lot of Jupiters <laughs> if they exist out in, in those uh, outer regions of the debris disks. I should point out that this is much further out than our own Jupiter, um, but we have found systems, uh, solar systems with planets out that far before. All right, so there's also a coronagraph on board MIRI. They, it has four. Um, one is a classic Leo coronagraph, like you've seen before, with a spot and some arms to hold it in place. The other three are actually, uh, they're termed four quadrant phase masks. And I don't have time today to explain in full how they work, but they work essentially by blocking the light of the central star, not by blocking the amplitude, but by blocking the phase. Um, so you don't actually lose any flux through the system. You're not blocking light. You're just at the center of the image where the four quadrants meet, um, destructively interfering the starlight with itself so that it doesn't show up in your image. Um, and I don't have time to explain that, but there's lots of cool documentation on uh, phase masks. And uh, this is actually a pretty old model. Um, they make a, a lot of really cool phase masks these days with all sorts of crazy patterns. Um, so that's worth looking into. And the contrast for MIRI is a bit worse here. Um, as you can see, you're not as sensitive to exoplanets as you are with MIRCAM. Um, so I would say if you're going out to design your own James Webb experiment and you want to look for planets, look, use MIRCAM. If you want to look for disks, use MIRI. <laughs> disks tend to be much brighter in the mid-infrared and the star itself is also much fainter. Um, so as you'll see in a moment, uh, the debris images with Miri are going to be really striking. All right, um, so uh, uh, the last thing I'll show you here is just a sample of some of the exciting debris science that's already planned. These are accepted um, general observing proposals or guaranteed time. Um, that's going to be executed in cycle one within the next year, uh, year and a half. Um, so uh, first I'll talk about the coronographic programs. So these are all coronographic programs that have been accepted. Um, and I'm a member of the first two here, the Mary Archetypal Debris Disks and the NIRCAM Scattered Light Debris Disk Program. Uh, there's also a very in-depth program on the Beta Pictoric Disk uh, out of Space Telescope. The large MIRI team is imaging a couple of debris disks among a sample of a ton of protoplanetary disks, both in coronographic and spectral modes. Um, so that should produce some really excited results. Uh, there's some images of disks around low mass M stars. Uh, there's an early release science program that actually the data for that gets observed first. Um, so you'll likely see results from that possibly this fall. Um, and that has 52 hours to look at exoplanets and disks across all of the instruments on James Webb. Um, and then there's a bunch of geo uh, proposals and exoplanet searches that I don't have time to uh, talk about today. Oh, a general observer. 
So anyone can apply for time on James Webb. Um, and then there's a peer review process um, and it's often oversubscribed. <laughs> All right, so a couple of highlights from a few of these programs. So the Miri Archetypal Debris Disk Program will look at the three nearest debris disks um, with spectacular resolution and also to look for planets inside those rings. So the three debris disks are Fummelhaut, uh, which you should recognize, uh, Vega, that Vega, uh, and Epsilon Eridani. So these are all systems within uh, three or seven parsecs very nearby. So we can image down to the asteroid belts in those systems. So this is a simulation of what we expect to see for Vega uh, with James Webb. Um, and you can see this is the asteroid belt and this is the Kuiper belt analog. And this is a near-chem image and a MIRI image. So these disks are just whopping bright in MIRI. Um, and here's another simulation in MIRI uh, with the crazy PSF of James Webb, the point spread function from having all those segments and things. Um, So the NIRCAM scattered light disk program is very similar. It's looking at a series of five disks, but with NIRCAM instead of MIRI. So we're still in the sort of scattered light regime. Um, these are the five systems as seen by Hubble, and we will image them with NIRCAM and also look for planets. Uh, and then there's also uh, an exciting program to look at the Beta Victoris disk and planet. So the disk is um, seen edge on. So you're looking sort of down the center um, and the, the star is um, almost being blocked by the disk, but there's not a mat material. Um, and then inside of that disk, you actually have a planet uh, orbiting the central star that has been imaged. Uh, and so they're gonna image beta pick with NIRCAM and MIRI and perform some spectroscopy to understand the composition. In addition to the, all those coronagraphic programs, there's also some dedicated uh, spectroscopy programs for debris disks. There's a MIRI um, mid-infrared instrument, MRS. MRS is the name of the, it's the, I think, medium resolution spectrograph. Uh, and this is led by Kate Sue, who's here at the University of Arizona. And uh, she's going to be looking at extreme, extreme variable debris disks, um, similar to that Spitzer source we saw. Uh, there's also a combined near-spec and MIRI program led by Christine Chen at Space Telescope to look again at beta PIC and also 3P297. And then there's a, um, a big MIRI of spectroscopic imaging campaign that's going to look at a bunch of protoplanetary disks and also um, a few of these exciting debris disk systems. So to describe this in a bit more detail, uh, so Kate is going to be working on, as I said, these extreme variable debris disks. And what that means is if you um, observe the brightness of the debris disks over time, you see this um, ebb and flow of material. And what is likely happening here is that uh, one of these massive collisions is happening, which produces the superheated plasma and a bunch of small dust grains, which then dissipates over time. And then another impact happens and you have this buildup of flux and then it drops again. And that happens cyclically. Um, and so the idea is to get spectra from James Webb um, in, in time series. So keep taking spectra 
over a period of time to see if this pattern is repeated and also to determine the composition and see if the composition changes during or after one of these events. And then of course we have the giant Miri uh, uh, protoplanetary and debris disk combined program. And in terms of debris disks, they're looking at TW Hydra here in red, AUMIC, which is shown in blue. And AUMIC is exciting because it has these clumps uh, that move outward over time. Um, and we don't fully understand what could cause such clumpy material uh, in a debris disk like this. Uh, and then HD181327, which is a nice ring. And this is a 120 hour program. And the idea here is to get spectra um, for protoplanetary and debris disk and sort of track the evolution of dust and gas in these systems. So both to investigate the chemical inventory, what um, mass is available, what composition is available at different radio locations for building planets, and also how does gas evolve through these systems. So with that, I will take any questions. And thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much, Skylar. Um, first of all, those of you who are watching the lecture on Zoom, if you have any questions for Dr. Wolf, please type them into the chat window and we will ask the questions of her. Are there any questions here among the studio audience? You have a question? Yes. Yes, when you showed that, that one uh, slide um, where you have the, the star and then you have the, I guess, the Kuiper belt, you have the asteroid belt in the middle, and then you have the, the rocky planets and gaseous planets. Now, that's pretty much a model of ours. Is, is, is that a general model for all of them? or And how was this discovered that it's pretty much accurate and it repeats itself? Right. That's a great question. Um, so this model is similar, um, but it's more that we use our own solar system to define uh, what, you know, how, how the nomenclature. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. So if you look at these systems, another thing I didn't touch on in this plot is uh, here, we're changing the stellar type. And as you change the stellar type, you're also changing the temperature of the central star. So the radial locations of the terrestrial planets and the asteroid belts and the Kuiper belts all move inward and outward. Uh, depending in large part on uh, the, the stellar type. Um, you can also uh, take or leave any of those components. So if you have terrestrial planets, they are going to be inside of the ice lines, um, but you don't necessarily have to have terrestrial planets in your system. Um, not every system has an asteroid belt or a Kuiper belt or ice giants. There's also, I, there's a huge diversity in planetary systems. Um, that I probably could go on forever about. Um, but yes, I hope that answers your question. We do know that Jovian-style planets can migrate yes. into the inner solar system, yes. or stellar system, I should say. Uh, other questions? Yes, we have one up here. Thank you. Um, so with a filter, when I think of a filter, it changes color. But in infrared, um, what is the filter's function? It does the same thing, 
Um, so you're just choosing a wavelength range that your camera will operate at. So it's a different infrared color. Yes. It's just different colors, but these are colors that cannot be seen with the human eye. Okay. A snake could see them. <laughs> yes, question here. Yeah. Uh, are you studying a similar uh, group of stars to our star, or are you studying all the way from blue giants to white dwarfs? Uh, is there a specific band of star types that you're going to be studying here right um so most of the stars so like epsilon eridani which is one of the three in our miri archetypal program that is a solar type star um a lot of the stars the debris disks are easy to see around nearby bright stars so you're looking let's see come back to this you're looking at like your f uh, your FGK stars are the easiest to see, and some of these bright A stars. Um, you do find debris disks around the lower mass stars, but they're a lot harder to detect, so there are just fewer of them. That doesn't mean there aren't debris disks around low mass stars. They're just much harder to see. But as a group, Skylar, these are all main sequence stars, correct? That's right, yeah. You're not looking at giant or supergiant stars. No. Debris disks are only found around main sequence stars. When they, you know, continue with their lifetime, they will eat their <laughs> planets and their debris disks. And by the time it's a white dwarf, there might not be much left. There's not much left, but there is actually some ongoing research into looking at disks around white dwarfs. Okay. I don't see any questions in the chat for Zoom, but I'll give our Zoom audience a few more moments to type in questions if they have any. Did you have another question? Just something that I'm quite ignorant about. So what exactly is a main sequence star? Ah, yeah. So uh, let's go back to our evolution figure. Um, so they first start as like a clump in these dense molecular regions that gravitationally collapse to form a pre-main sequence star. And um, essentially it has to do with um, the processes ongoing in the cores of the star. So as they age, um, they'll accrete mass and accrete mass and accrete mass, and eventually they'll have enough mass and energy to kick off fusion in their cores. And then they migrate onto the main sequence and they live there for most of their lifetimes until they run out of material to burn in their cores. And then they evolve in various ways. So what I tell my students in my STARS course that I taught this afternoon, if you, Look at the analogy of the human, like compare stars as if they were human beings. A pre-main sequence star is sort of a fetus, all right? A main sequence star is an adult. And what all main sequence stars have in common is they fuse hydrogen into helium. Hydrogen is the fuel. Our sun is a main sequence star, and it will be on... The that word comes from a diagram we call the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, where we plot luminosity versus temperature of stars, and 90% of all the stars form on a perfect diagonal line that we call the main sequence. All right, so these are basically stars in their adulthood. The giant and supergiant stars that we refer to is old age. It's what happens after they've turned all the hydrogen into helium. They have further stages of evolution, but that requires the star 
to get larger in radius and it can swallow up some of its planets. Other questions? Okay, and I will just check the Zoom chat one more time. Yes, we have a question. Are the filters to help with spectral analysis or to filter out certain features such as dust so you can detect other features like planets or both? Okay, yeah, so um, filters in some cases, especially when you try to observe in the mirror infrared from the ground, the atmosphere emits a lot in the mid-infrared. And so you have filters, very narrow filters to try to block all of that atmospheric flux. In space, that's not what we're trying to do. We don't wanna, there's nothing to block. And we certainly don't wanna block the dust because that's you know what we're trying to see with these debris disks. Um, there are systems uh, that do have filters to highlight uh, planets, for example, in ground-based high contrast imaging systems, we thought that all of these young planets would have a lot of methane. So we built in specific methane filters and turns out they don't <laughs> necessarily. Uh, so no, the ideas are just to help um, distinguish uh, different uh, lines in this and in various other spectra, different compositional lines. Ideally, you would be able to measure the flux at every civil wavelength, but practically you can't do that. So it's like saying with optical light, blue stars are hotter than red stars. Look, the color gives you information, not only about temperature, but also about what, yeah. Yeah, what, what actually can be the composition of some of these debris particles. So I do not see any other questions from Zoom and we have no more, oh, we have one more question here. this big picture, but could you name a few things that you're hoping to learn from being able to observe the debris disks yeah. with the new telescope? Um, so let's see. Yeah, here we go. Um, so at a basic level, we wanna know if the, the disks we see with Hubble look the same with in the mid-infrared. So are we tracing the same grain populations? If they look different, that tells us something interesting about the grain sizes and temperatures in the disk. Apart from that, we wanna to try to start um, identifying what's causing all of these rings. So we have you know, that beautiful diversity of um, debris disk images, but we don't necessarily know what's causing the sharp rings or the different morphologies. Um, so we can hope that by looking at the color of compositional information, we can see, well, is this located, is this ring at the location of an ice line? Because it's thought that material collects at ice lines because that's where a bunch of material freezes out and it gets sort of trapped at the locations of those ice lines. Um, if it's not at the location of an ice line, it's probably shepherding from an unseen planet. Um, you can have planets that dynamically impact the, the disk dust around them. Um, and so where are those planets? Um, and what does that tell us about planetary system architectures? I hope that answers your question. All right, I'd like to remind you that our next lecture is two weeks from tonight, March the 28th. Hopefully we'll be able to do that lecture without masks. 
Our speaker is one of our graduate students, Ryan Ensley. He's going to tell you how he's using James Webb Space Telescope to find the first galaxies. They're going to look so far out into the universe, which all that light's redshifted, so you've got to look in the infrared, to see galaxies forming for the very first time. So that's the topic two weeks from tonight. Please feel free to look through the telescope. It's right next door. The, the three-story building, go up two flights of stairs, and you'll get to the telescope room. And uh, other than that, let's thank Dr. Wolf one more time.